This is Critical Wit, a podcast about science, literature, and the arts. I'm Chris Lindsay. In today's episode, I will speak with Dr. Steven Salzberg from the University of Maryland. Steve Salzberg has authored over 90 papers and reviews on a range of topics that include vaccines, genetic patents, genome assembly, and the topic we'll be discussing today, direct-to-consumer genetic testing. He also has a blog called Genomes, Evolution, and Pseudoscience. The URL is genome.fieldofscience.com and will be also in the show notes. You're listed as the director of the Center for Bioinformatics and Computational Biology at the University of Maryland. That's a research center, and we focus on using uh, computers to study DNA and genes. Does that involve sequencing of genes? We've been involved in the sequencing of of many genomes. Uh, The genome uh, is the total complement of DNA that an organism has. That's its genome. And I've been involved in genome sequencing since the mid-1990s, which was the very early days of genome sequencing. The first genomes were being sequenced then. Uh, I was involved in the Human Genome Project and and many uh, bacterial and viral genome projects. And we still are today sequencing uh, many new species that haven't yet been sequenced. Can you give some examples of some of those species? In the past? Well, actually, most recently there was a paper that we just published um, although the work was done uh, seven years ago, eight years ago, we just published a paper on the sequencing of a, a number of different anthrax bacteria that were part of the uh, FBI investigation of the 2001 anthrax attacks. And that only just appeared, even though we did the work a while ago, because it was, uh, unlike all my other work, that work was secret. Is it primarily bacteria and, and microorganisms that you're, you are sequencing? Or are there any more complex organisms? Oh, well, right now we've been sequencing um, a cow. Uh, we just published the turkey genome. We published the strawberry genome uh, just a couple months ago. We're about to, we just started the pine tree genome. We're doing several bees and ants, so all kinds. Of- Is there any kind of priority on what animals you study? I'm an expert on the DNA sequencing technology and on the computational methods, so I'm kind of agnostic about which uh, species it is. So uh, I have collaborators all over the world. And they're experts on these species, and, and generally I get into these projects because someone contacts me frequently out of the blue. Uh, someone gave, gives them my name, and they need my help with assembling or sequencing and assembling the genome of the organism that they want to sequence. Okay, I was getting this image that there was this family tree dartboard, and once it hits like cow, it's like that, that's when we're going to sequence. Next. No, not at all. There's uh, each of these organisms actually has a remarkably large scientific community surrounding it, and. Uh, now that genome sequencing is getting cheaper and cheaper, um, all these communities are uh, discovering that they can afford, afford to sequence the genome of the animal or plant or insect that they are interested in, and then they need a genome technology expert. And so that's where uh, come into the, the picture. So how do you actually sequence a genome? 
Well, the first steps are, are in a wet lab, and I don't have a wet lab, so I don't do those steps, although I've been in these labs, and I kind of know how they work. Um, so you have to get some tissue or cells from the organism you want to sequence and purify DNA from them, and that isn't really that hard to do. It's quite routine. So you, you extract purified DNA from the cells, uh, and then it gets a little more complicated. Um, but for a layperson, I would... I guess the best way to explain it is that you break the DNA up into many millions or actually billions of pieces. Um, and you actually have, because you have many cells, they're all, each cell has the whole genome in it. So you have many, many identical copies of the genome. You break all of the copies up into many pieces. And then you sequence those pieces. And the reason you do that is that sequencing technology can only read a short amount of DNA at a time. So DNA is, is written in a four-letter alphabet that many people are familiar with. We usually represent it by the letters A, C, G, and T. And you can think of it this way. Suppose that I took the, the morning's, this morning's issue of your local newspaper, which had, let's say it had hundreds of thousands of copies. And let's say I shredded all those copies into lots of little tiny pieces, just randomly, shredded them up, and I gave the, the entire pile of tiny little pieces to you, and all you could see on each piece of paper was a, a sentence or two. With a lot of work, you could probably put the paper back together because you have many copies and they're all shredded in different ways. So you would start to try to notice when one sentence overlapped another one uh, and sort of finished another one. And you could eventually put it all back together. And that's exactly what we do on the computer with the sequences that come out. So the genome is in the lab broken up into many pieces. An automated sequencing machine reads those pieces in very short fragments, nowadays about 100 letters at a time. And from those little tiny hundred letter pieces, we reconstruct genomes which range anywhere from a, a million or so letters, that is DNA bases long, to uh, several billion bases long. Well, the reason why I wanted to talk with you is about the emergence of direct-to-consumer genetic testing kits. Um, now, you've written a lot about this. Uh, what exactly are they, like just in general, and, and how do they work? Well, there's a, uh, there are a number of different types of these direct-to-consumer genetic tests around, uh, and they're changing rapidly because DNA sequencing is getting a lot cheaper. The, the tests that have been around longer are based on usually, from what I've seen, they're testing just one or a small number of mutations in a small number of genes, and they'll tell you um, whether or not you have this mutation that might confer some increased risk for something. Perhaps the best-known genetic test is the test for the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. And that's actually not a test for the genes, but it's a test for on the order of a couple of hundred different possible mutations in those particular genes that confer an increased risk for breast cancer and colon cancer. So if you're tested for those, they're only testing a tiny, tiny portion of your genome, looking only at, at, at a couple of genes and looking at specific locations within those genes to see if you have a mutation which is known to increase your risk of cancer. And I should say there's very few genes for which we have such clear evidence that a particular mutation increases your risk for anything. We're still, this is a still very early days in, in uh, genetics and, and what we call sometimes personalized medicine, where we're trying to figure out what all the genes do and what every mutation causes. And we don't by any means know that yet. Now, the other type of test, which is much newer and only a few companies are starting to offer this, is one where they will they will interrogate your genome at a very large number of locations and maybe as many as a million locations looking for small mutations that in most cases we really can't tell you much about it. We can tell you have a mutation that might change uh, the way you look or feel or behave or sense the world, but very few of them have any known effect on your health. 
And then sort of at the extreme end, we have a few companies that will sequence your whole genome for you, um, which would be fun to have in a way, but today we really can't do a lot with you in terms of giving you advice about how to change your lifestyle. But you can pay someone to do it, and they'll give you uh, your genome. The direct-to-consumer genetic testing is somewhat controversial. Uh, why is that? Well, the controversy is, as I understand it, is because the companies that are marketing these tests are promising or at least implying a bit more than they can really deliver. So as I just said, we don't really know much about whether a mutation in a particular location on, on your genome, for the vast majority of mutations that we might detect, we don't know if those mutations will change your health in any way. And we don't have any advice to give you. We can measure them. So it's basically we can read the text. We can read the book of your DNA, but we can't really tell you what it means. But because it's relatively inexpensive to, to do these tests, there are companies that are already popping up that will legitimately measure your DNA. They're not, they're not uh, making this up. They can actually do some DNA sequencing of your DNA and they can tell you what they find, but they really don't have much that's going to be of use to you that they can offer to go with that. So they're trying to offer advice and they're trying to convince their customers that it's worth paying for this information, but there's not very much that's worth paying for. And there are a few exceptions like the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, but there aren't very many. So that's where the controversy is. They're selling not just um, some information about your genome but they're, uh, of the sequence, but they're, they're trying to suggest that they can tell you a lot more that might be important for your health. And that is, in most cases, probably not true. Can genetic kits or genetic tests offer any insight into a, a, an array of physiological problems? For the most part, no. So the... The BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes confer a significantly increased risk of breast cancer and colon cancer. There are hundreds of other mutations that have been associated with cancer, with Alzheimer's disease, as you mentioned, with diabetes, with other things, but all the associations are very weak. So you may get tested um, in the sense that someone might sequence your DNA, but they can't really tell you that you have a significantly greater risk of pretty much anything. Unless you have one of one of these uh, rather unfortunate mutations in BRCA1 and BRCA2, and, and a few other mutations like that. Would you say then that whoever is doing the interpreting of the information, they may be susceptible to bias? Well, not necessarily. It depends on who's doing the interpretation. The company that's selling you the test wants to sell you the test. You could say they're biased in that they want to convince you the test is worth doing. I think these tests are um, mostly to satisfy our curiosity at the moment. I think in a few years, as, as the years go by, they're going to get a lot more powerful. But right now, they're not. You had written... You can't really sell a lot of tests just by uh, you know, suggesting that it's going to satisfy your curiosity. They, they want more customers. So uh, You had written in one of your papers uh, that some primary care providers may not be equipped to interpret genetic tests. Uh, why is that? Yeah, well, that, that paper is, um, that refers to a paper we published, uh, just last year where we were doing something different. We were intentionally challenging the notion of patents on genes. And, uh, and we, we chose the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes because they're the ones that are the most, um, informative. And also there's a patent on those genes. And in order for you to find out 
whether you have a dangerous mutation in one of those genes, um, you actually have to pay a licensing fee in other, through the, the, the test that you would order. The test you would order for those genes can only be done by one company called Myriad Genetics because they own the patent. So essentially they charge a very high fee on the order of $3,000 or more to test you for mutations in those genes. And um, what we did was we said, come on, this is, you know, it's, these genomes are not anyone's property mm-hmm. invention. So we don't think it makes sense that there were patents granted. And in fact, the federal government now seems to agree in a, in a recent court ruling, which is being appealed, where they threw that out. They threw that patent out, and we'll see if that holds up. But before that occurred, we, we actually did our work and, and, and wrote our paper. And so we produced a do-it-yourself genetic test where if you were to sequence your genome, and admittedly you have to pay someone to sequence it, which you can't do very cheaply today, but it, it would cost you on the order of, of eight to ten thousand dollars today. Uh, in a few years, I think it will cost you under a thousand dollars, and that's going to continue to drop. And I think that the day is not far off, and we'll all have our entire genome on a thumb drive that we'll just carry into our doctor's office, or more likely, our doctor will have it on his or her computer. So that's where your question comes into play: is if I have a mutation, or you have a mutation in a gene that confers some increased risk or cancer, or some other disease. That's actually a fairly technical finding. You have to be quite familiar with the recent literature to know that, and not all doctors are going to be up on that. So not all doctors are going to be able to look at your genome and tell you whether you have any mutations that confer any risk of anything. But do you see this as becoming a necessary prerequisite for doctors? Uh, People who are going through medical school will have to be trained in how to interpret uh, this kind of information? Yes, and I think that's already beginning to happen in medical schools. But um, you know, doctors have been out practicing for 20 years aren't in medical school. So they'll have to get a continuing education to train them in that. And frankly, there's so much to know about the genome that no individual is going to know at all. So they're going to have what, what doctors will need to know is how to find out. So they'll have to, there will be services that will appear. Our, our paper was really a proof of concept where we produce some software that will give you a report on the mutation status of about 70 mutations in, in uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. But that's not nearly enough. So eventually there will be software that, that will be able to guide a doctor to all the information that he or she needs to tell you whether or not you have any mutations that um, we can sort of use to guide the patient's care. We're not there yet. We're, we're years away from that, but it's going to happen. Where is the responsibility or the culpability of getting the right information to the customer? Is it more on the customer end or is the company in any way responsible for making sure that the customer is getting valuable information, something that's worth it to them? Well, that's a question I'm not so expert on. The field is largely unregulated right now. Uh, There are hearings that have been held in Congress about what to do about this. And uh, I think the FDA also, I know the FDA is actually looking at the direct-to-consumer genetic testing market and trying to figure out whether it should try to regulate the market and what it should do. It's all very new, and in a way, the uh, industry has gotten ahead of uh, the government, as is not uncommon um, here. So the industry is already selling these tests, and I would say it's uh, right now it's buyer beware. Before you pay for one of these tests, uh, try to educate yourself about what you might get, and uh, if you go into it with a, a little scientific background or you go into it just knowing that it's just really to satisfy your curiosity, then you won't be disappointed. But if you go into it thinking you're going to get some really useful advice on how to change your lifestyle and make yourself healthier, 
you're likely to be disappointed. Almost certainly you'll be disappointed. Do you have any concerns that direct-to-consumer genetic testing kits are going to be vulnerable to pseudoscience or, or outright fraud? Yes, I suppose they, they will be. Almost every medical treatment is, so there's nothing uh, that will stop the, the frauds from, and the quacks from using this as well. Um, but a fraudulent use would be pretending to do a genetic test and not really even doing it. Um, if uh, That's not happening as far as I, I know right now. Yeah, another example of fraud I was thinking, and maybe it's not fraud, is a company that, that appeared to be dubious uh, to me because they were seemingly implying that they could look at your genes and tell you which sports you'd be predisposed to being able to be successful at. Did you have a take a look at that website? And did you I did. It? I did. Well, in fact, that gene is the, the uh, actin-3 gene, mm-hmm. and actin is a protein involved in, in building muscle fibers. And this, there are multiple studies that associate uh, mutations in this gene with athletic ability. So it's not bogus. It's, it's real. Um, it's not clear you can give anybody any advice whatsoever based on their mutations of this gene, but there do seem to be different mutations in, um, in some of the studies. There are different mutations in sprint and endurance athletes uh, versus uh, strength athletes uh, in this particular gene. So you could do a test and say to someone, you look more like a, you know, a long-distance runner than you do like a, um, a shot putter. Uh, you know, or a sprinter or a weightlifter. And you can tell them that. But these associations are not that strong. So you wouldn't be telling them, even if you have the wrong mutation, doesn't mean you can't be a long-distance runner, in, in, even an elite one. So uh, like with, with most mutations we, we know about, there's an association. We don't strictly know if it's causal, and it's not. It's nowhere near 100% association. It's just that there's a slightly greater frequency of some mutations in world-class, world-class long-distance runners than other mutations. So if you have a mutation that's a little more common in long-distance runners, you could pat yourself on the back and say, hey, I could be one of them. You'd be wrong, but you could still. <laughs> so they're not completely, it's not completely bogus. It's just that there's no, in the literature that I briefly looked at this week, there's no advice you can give someone about what they can do. It's not like, Oh, in this case, here's a training regimen for you so you can become a sprinter or a long-distance runner. There's, there's nothing like that we can tell someone, but we, there is a difference in, in, in how our bodies build these muscle fibers. And the, there are mutations in the actin-3 gene that affect, uh, seem to be correlated, let me just say, seem to be correlated with world-class performance in uh, endurance events versus strength events. So it's not, it's not bogus. So they probably, Someone in that company knew about the literature a little bit. They said, hey, look, there's this gene that's associated with athletic performance. Let's get, let's sell people a test for it. So for, uh, I think, $169 on their website, they'll sequence this particular gene for you. So they're sequencing one of your genes, maybe even only part of the gene. I don't know how much of they sequence. Uh, and we have about 23,000 genes. So they're only sequencing a tiny, tiny amount of your DNA. Uh, and they'll tell you whether you have any mutations associated with uh, the endurance phenotype versus the strength phenotype. And if that's exciting to you to know, then I would say, fine, pay the 169 bucks. But all you're going to know at the end is whether you have this mutation, which is tending slightly to make you more like a long-distance runner than a weightlifter. And that's it. So as long as they put put it in those terms, then it's it's valid. 
yes, it's it's not pseudoscience. There really is a gene that is associated with athletic performance. So it's it's okay. I think it's fine to tell people we'll sequence that gene of yours and tell you whether you have any mutations that are correlated with the different uh, phenotypes, as they're called. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Salzberg. Nice talking to you. Critical Wit is a production of the Ann Arbor Science and Skeptics, with support from the Michigan Skeptics Association. Critical Wit is hosted by Chris Lindsay. Technical support is provided by Amy Lindsay and Nick Lester-Bell, and the music on the show is courtesy of Jay Grimace-Jones. Critical Wit is licensed by the Creative Commons. You may rebroadcast all or any part of the show as is with attribution. You can email topic suggestions, questions, or comments to criticalwitpodcast at gmail.com. Critical Wit is also on Twitter at The Critical Wit and on Facebook. Thank you for listening.